Today's reading is from Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, and is found on page 990 in the Church Bibles. The Cost of Being a Disciple. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, will you use my words and say whatever it is that you want to say to us this morning? May your words go into our hearts and transform our lives. Amen. A while ago, somebody in our congregation asked me, is there something we need to be doing to prepare the church for Brexit? And uh, I've thought about that question a lot, actually. And um, the answer I keep coming up with is, we prepare by standing on the same stuff we've always stood on and by reminding ourselves of that stuff. Um, because God is unchanging through the ages and the promises that he makes are true in this crisis as they've been true in every crisis humankind has ever known and this nation has ever known. And so that is surely what we do. We keep on keeping on. We keep on being disciples and pressing into God because that's the solid rock that we base our lives on. So if you're being thrown around by this week's news and the uncertainty of the many things that are going on in our world at the moment, whether it's climate change or whatever it is, uh, we, we need to know that we still stand on the solid rock of Christ. And that's how we will prepare, by doing more of that kind of stuff. So it's been quite strange to prepare a sermon about counting the cost based on the passage in Luke that was probably written in the later part of the first century in a week where it feels like the wheels have properly come off in Parliament over the Brexit crisis. Um, since the referendum in 2016, politicians and public alike have been trying in various ways to understand and count the cost of the decision to leave or remain, and everyone is still arguing about it. What has upset leavers and remainers alike is that nobody seems to have properly thought much of it through when it comes to how in practice it's all going to work and what the economic implications might really be. This week we've seen rebel conservative MPs counting the cost of putting their principles before their party loyalty, knowing that rebellion means being booted out of the party however long serving their tenure or distinguished their political careers. 
this passage in Luke seems to be about two things, our priorities and prudence, what matters and what wisdom is necessary to act on what matters. Of course, in the case of our passage, it is particularly when it comes to being a follower or a disciple of Christ. You'll know by now that Jesus is using a kind of Jewish figure of speech when he seems to be instructing people to hate their nearest and dearest relatives and even their own life if they want to follow him. He's not, to be clear, instructing us to hate those we love the most. It's rhetoric to make a point. It's like we might say, oh, I died of embarrassment or I'd give my right arm for a coffee or something like that. Jesus is talking about the way that following him will inevitably lead to important choices. Sooner or later, we will have to decide what is more important to us, Jesus or something else. Family has been and always will be of paramount importance in Jesus' time, perhaps more so even than in our particular culture today. Who your family were was the most important thing because family gave you your position in society and was your security. Heritage and inheritance were everything and were bound up with land ownership and honour and it played very directly into the kind of life and future you and your descendants could expect or hope to have as you grew up and had family of your own. So as a follower of Jesus... Instead, your earthly family no longer defines who you are or the decisions you make when it comes to making decisions that honour God. You might remember Jesus speaking in Matthew. While he was still talking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him and someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does my will, does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother and sister and mother. So the boundaries of family are suddenly thrown wide as he speaks to those followers. The, the social strata are blurred, the barriers are lifted. Who you are born to no longer affects whether or not you belong. For some people whose own experience of family has been problematic or damaging to them, then that is a huge comfort. How many people go through life feeling they don't belong or fit in, that something about them isn't quite right, where the places and the people that they've drawn their identity from are damaged and therefore are damaging to them? Do you remember the media scandal when it was discovered very publicly that Archbishop Justin Welby's biological father was not whom he had believed him to be. That his parents had both been alcoholics and that his birth was the result of an affair and it was splashed all over the papers. And Archbishop Justin responded with an astonishingly open public statement at the time and in it he acknowledged that his early life had been very messy and how common an experience that is for people. And he said, my own experience is typical of many people. To find that one's father is other than imagined is not unusual. To be the child of families with great difficulties in relationships with substance abuse or other matters is far too normal. But then he spoke very clearly about why this upbringing and the revelation about his biological father wasn't the undoing of him. 
and it had to do with where his real identity was located. He said this, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and that my identity in him never changes. Although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. It is a testimony to the grace and power of Christ to liberate and redeem us. Grace and power which is offered to every human being. That's so powerful, isn't it? Jesus' identity is rooted in the Father and ours is in Jesus, which is in turn rooted in our creator God. And this means that we have opened to us a rock-solid identity as a child of God, no matter how conflicting the messages we have heard about where we belong and who we are during our upbringing. It means freedom, because that identity as a child of God is written through us like a stick of rock. Even though we might have entirely lost sight of it or never realized it until now, the discovery of it is to come home to the ultimate stability, to perfect love, to being perfectly known, to being cherished for who we are and to be gently led into becoming more fully us, the unique and wonderful human being that we were made to be in the very first place. It means that no matter what has happened to us, what damage life has done to us, there's an underlying assurance of God's love and our status as his beloved child that enables healing to take place because we're no longer adrift trying to find the thing that anchors us, the thing that tells us who we are. Why is all that important when it comes to the passage in Luke about counting the cost? It's because it's set in the context of this freedom to be sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, that we count the cost of following Jesus. There's a tendency, I think, to view discipleship as if following Jesus is a bit like walking in the top of a giant funnel, as if life is wide and spacious, okay, beforehand, before we restrict ourselves to discipleship. And then it narrows right down and it becomes all about rules and regulations and constraint and being squished into the right Christian shape. And actually, I think it's kind of the other way around. I think if we commit to following Christ, then what we might at first perceive to be narrow and restrictive actually begins to open out into a wider freedom and grace than we ever expected. Like we've gone in at the tiny spout end of the funnel and then we find it suddenly all open out before us. And what do I mean by that? I suppose there's a point of realization that when it comes to the Christian faith, that it's not a case that anything goes and that's okay. There is a pathway to follow if we want to follow Jesus. Firstly, we have to understand our need of grace and rescue. We recognize that we've sinned and it puts us at odds with a holy God. We have to respond to that invitation of Christ to accept his gift of freedom. We have to put our trust in God, hand over the control of our lives. All these things can feel like a surrender, like maybe we're giving up autonomy and self-sufficiency, and we are, and that can feel counterintuitive because we're taught from an early age to stand on our own two feet and look out for ourselves and to make our own way in life and to realize our own dreams. But the reality is, and that's the spacious reality we come out into, 
is that we will never be able to live our best lives without God at the centre. Jesus came so that we might have life in all its fullness. That is the way to fullness of life. Remember, he describes himself as a gateway, doesn't he, to a full life. In the message, it's put like this. This is from John 10.10. Jesus told this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about, so he tried again. I'll be explicit then. I am the gate for the sheep. All those others are up to no good. Sheep stealers, every one of them. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for, will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Freedom and fullness of life is there, but we've got to go through that gate because it comes through Christ. So back then to our passage and the tower builder and the king contemplating war. What's he saying? Commit fully, unequivocally. Understand as best as you can what you're getting into. Don't do it half-heartedly because living in the freedom that Christ has for us means exercising the choice that then becomes ours to live differently. It will be life-changing. It will be life-bringing and transformative but sometimes it will be really hard because we will rub up against the structures and the opinions and the values of those we live alongside in this world. And we will have to choose daily to walk in peace, in forgiveness, in self-control, in gentleness, in giving a voice to the voiceless, a hand to the helpless, praying for healing, restoration, reconciliation, calling those Christians who are not like us, brother and sister. None of this is soft option stuff, is it? But all of it will bring life and living water to a desperately thirsty world. Hold those things in mind as we watch the news this week. It's really clear that following Christ is not a hobby. It's not something that we do to fit round other stuff. For Christians in some parts of the world, of course, it's considered to be seditious and dangerous stuff. And our brothers and sisters in North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, India, they need our prayers and our support. Nevertheless, following Christ and partnering with him in the here and now for the sake of this planet and for those that we share it with is more important than anything else we have in life or anything else we will ever be or do. But it may mean giving up our plan for his plan. It means surrender. It means opening our hand so that we stop grasping for the wrong things. But we'll find if we really do it, it will always be a wider, more gracious and more surprising plan than anything we could ever have imagined for ourselves. Because in Christ, we are always part of a much bigger work. We will become our best us as we step out in fullness of life. And in doing, we'll find it's not only about us. Archbishop Oscar Romero committed himself to the poor and the persecuted of El Salvador for most of his life. And he wrote this poem, which I'd like to read before I finish. 
It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that should be said, no prayer fully expressed our faith, no confession brings perfection, no pastoral visit brings wholeness, no program accomplishes the church's mission, no set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produced efforts far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that because it enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. Amen.